0: So we've been doing these fugitives. And when I sat down to do this, I had like this really specific set of criteria that I have wandered away from as we're talking. But because it's the holidays and we um, sort of had made this uh, plan that we were going to like talk about a bunch of different fugitives. Originally, I only want to talk. I wanted to talk about fugitives that were like still missing. Um, I've talked about some other people along the way because we just sort of went that way. Have you ever looked at the FBI's 10 Most Wanted lists, like just for fun?
1: I have. I mean, not really recently, but yeah, I have.
0: So right now, they uh, the the 10 Most Wanted, um, while we're recording this, um, there's one woman and nine men, but one of the nine men is now captured, so I'm sure he'll be replaced. So uh, the woman is Ruja Ignatova. And then there's Arnold Jimenez, Omar Alexander Cardenas, Alexis Flores, Jose Rodolfo Villarreal Hernandez, uh, Yulon Adane Archega carrias Badaresh Kumar Shantabai Patel, Alejandro Rosales-Castillo, Michael James Pratt, and Rafael Caro Quintero, who is now captured. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about some of them before we get into today's fugitive, because the fugitive I want to talk about is sort of a weird one. She's not um, like a traditional fugitive. But I wanted to start with Ruja, uh, Ruja, who... Like some places her name is spelled R-U-Z-H-A and some places her name is spelled R-U-J-A. She has a like a Wikipedia entry and like her entry on the, she's fairly recent to the top 10 most wanted, but I, I just wanted to talk about her before we get into the next one. So she is a Bulgarian born German convicted fraudster. Like that's, the description of her, she is best known as being the founder of a fraudulent cryptocurrency scheme known as OneCoin. You ever heard of OneCoin?
1: Um, just from her involvement in it, I, I didn't. I don't really know anything about it apart from that.
0: So, The Times, which is a British daily newspaper, calls OneCoin one of the biggest scams in history. Um, there's a podcast about her called "The Missing Crypto Queen" from 2019. Um, you can go; people can go and listen to that about her. Uh, so, since 2017, she's been on the run from various international law enforcement agencies in multiple countries. She's wanted on pretty much every continent at this point. In early 2019, she was charged by US authorities for wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering. And in June of 2022, they added her to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. So she's fugitive number 527 on the list. She's very, um, attractive, like in the photographs and stuff they use of her. It's, it's sort of unusual. Um, if that, like, so. Most of the fugitives that I come across and I look at on the FBI, they never choose a good picture. It's like their driver's license photo or a mug shot. Hers looks like a headshot. <laughs> um, like, and then if you go to the Wikipedia page, same thing. It's like a 2015 headshot of her. Uh, and here's like, there's not much about her um, on here, but you can go listen to Crypto Queen to hear a lot more about her. And I'm not advocating for that particular podcast. I've only started to listen to it because I found her story interesting. So she was born in uh, Bulgaria in 1980. She's 42 years old now. Uh, She immigrated to Germany with her family when she was 10 years old. So in 1990, she spent part of her childhood in in Schramberg. She studied at Oxford. And in 2005, she earned a PhD in international law, private international law, law from the university of Constance in Germany. Um, She has really long, complex dissertation. Um, but she basically, uh, it's its on Lex Loki, which is the, the shorthand version of uh, the conflict of laws. Um, literally, Lex Causa is the Latin for it. And it's just talking about relevant legal systems when international or interjurisdictional cases, which she... Causes. Um, so I thought that was interesting that in 2005 she writes a dissertation on it and then she basically turns into um, a subject of her dissertation. She had reportedly been employed by McKinsey and Company, which is this global management consulting firm that's almost 100 years old. It was founded by a University of Chicago professor named James McKinsey. They do a lot of uh, Fortune 500 companies, and um, it's one of the big three management companies. So here's her criminal activity rundown. In 2012, she gets convicted of fraud in Germany in connection with her own activities and her father's uh, acquisition of a company that shortly after he acquires it, it gets declared bankrupt in dubious circumstances. And for that, she gets a suspended sentence of 14 months imprisonment. Uh, the gist of that, the, the rundown on that is they took all the assets out of this company and then declared bankruptcy and left like a lot of vendors and investors and, and the public um, owing basically they owed them a lot of money that uh, they're never going to see now. In 2013, she gets involved in a multi level marketing scam called Bitcoin. And that's B-I-G-C-O-I-N. And like that's one, basically it's like one big Ponzi scheme uh, sort of based on crypto. In 2014, she gets involved in uh, this Ponzi scheme called OneCoin. That's O-N-E coin. And um, it sort of sprawls across all of these um, countries. Like it's, technically based in bulgaria but it's registered in dubai and it, uh it is her and a partner named sebastian greenwood that uh that make this crazy ponzi scheme um crypto ponzi scheme uh, so in 2019 her brother who is konstantin ignatov he pleads guilty to fraud and money laundering uh in 2022 the police in germany confirmed uh, that they were investigating a lawyer for possibly money laundering. Um, and they were looking at the transfer of around 8 million euros from her into this lawyer's private account. Uh, in January of 2022, police searched apartments and offices in uh, Weilburg, um, Frankfurt, among other places in Germany. So in May of 2022, Europol adds her to their most wanted list and in june of 2022 the fbi adds her to the top 10 most wanted fugitives list um and it's this massive joint press conference that they hold with the irs uh, criminal investigation division and the united states attorney's office out of the southern district of new york and she has a um a reward on her head for about a hundred thousand dollars i think is where it's at uh if for information leading to her arrest. Now she's married to a German lawyer who is thought to be also being investigated. Um, And they had a daughter in 2016. So at this point she has like a, you know, six or seven year old kid. I thought it was interesting that she is uh, currently essentially at the top of the most wanted list. They don't really rank people there, but she ends up being at the top from the perspective that she's the most recent one. So she's, literally at the top of the page. And I don't... Do you know much about, like, cryptocurrency? I don't know that much about it.
1: I do. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I know about it. Um, you know, I I have opinions about uh, the FBI putting people on the, you know... I, I don't know that it's, like, precious space as much as it would have been before, like, the internet. But, like... Uh, you know how I feel about financial crimes being uh, <laughs> occupying, you know time and space. now, she did defraud billions of dollars. that's with a B right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, uh, I, I I know just a smidge about this situation and i I feel like, Um, I'm still going to have to disagree with her being on the top 10 most wanted the billions of dollars, uh, stolen essentially from, you know, the situations that she has, uh, why she's wanted. Right. Um, it, it, I mean, the amounts might sway me a little bit, but it, it's really not enough to put it above like other violent crimes that have occurred, right. Uh, or other violent criminals that should be on the most wanted. Um, but you know what? I'm not the FBI. So.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm i going to run through just a little bit about one coin, which is what she's technically wanted for. And we'll talk about that. And then we'll, we'll move on to another fugitive. But Uh, You're right. It's a huge amount of money. Cryptocurrency is a digital currency. And the way that this all goes down is um, the organizational structure of this was a Ponzi scheme. And so how that works, in case people don't know, there are two elements to this that make it a, a separate type of scheme as well. But a Ponzi scheme is when an organizational structure is set up so that the earliest investors, meaning like, say, if you have 100 investors, well, investors one through 20, they are paid with money coming in from investors 50 through 80. So that's how a Ponzi scheme works. The earliest people in, they do get some of their money back, but it's not money that's been made by the scheme. It's money that's coming in as fresh blood money from new investors. That's you know, a Ponzi scheme. Um, now,
1: have you, okay, so do you think that everybody completely understands when they find themselves participating in Ponzi schemes, what they're doing?
0: No, no, I, I I don't. And I think, I think it's even more difficult when it comes to things like cryptocurrency, which is sort of built on air to begin with. Um, right.
1: Because it like, it, it's nothing. I mean, it is, it's numbers flying through the air, right?
0: Yeah. Like the, so Ponzi schemes, uh, what makes them a problem is typically if we stay with that, like we'll say there's a hundred investors there. Um, and Kevin Bacon is like number 50 and he comes in, he's looking at paperwork that is presented by whoever is your Bernie Madoff or your Charles Ponzi, that makes it look like the companies or the organizations or whatever, the business, it makes it look like their activity is generating a profit. They don't know they're the profit and that there's really nothing to this.
1: um, Because ultimately it it won't sustain itself. Um, Eventually you're going to run out of people um right. eventually the jig is going to be up because ideally in that situation where you're um you know recruiting investors the thought is you're going to take their money and you're going to do something with it that generates a profit and it brings it back into uh the company or you know whatever you're doing and they're going to share in that with you right
0: yeah
1: uh the only distinction that's made between a um because some of the ways that it's worded um it gets really confusing because you know people who get in at the beginning of legitimate investment deals will ultimately end up making more money uh the difference is like it comes from the profits right as opposed to it doesn't come from the pockets of the new investors
0: Right, and it's it's generally some kind of set return or a percentage of profits with a set return. The idea is that you can get a return on your investment based on that activity of either a business activity, and that's what's interesting about her is because, and I could derail this with Ponzi schemes, her world being part of a management company like McKinsey & Company was not really built on anything other than a lot of talking and paperwork shuffling because when now, you're doing consulting that happens
1: well that is literally that could be the definition of consulting right. um I'm going to shuffle this paperwork and you can uh, write me a check is basically how that works. Or I guess send me a crypto. I don't know. But um, so she it seems like she's she's clearly really smart. I haven't read her dissertation or anything, but she also uh, got to sort of uh, be part of this uh, thing where like cryptocurrency is coming into fruition people don't really know enough about it just yet to completely understand it and she just exploited that right i mean that's basically um if you were going to you know narrow down what she did um she just Uh, She took advantage of a situation because she was smart enough to understand what was going on. And I would say she probably completely understood the ramifications of what she was doing. She just didn't care, right? Um, Yeah,
0: yeah. You can't can't run a scheme this big and not understand. uh, You said ramifications. But I would say that there's no way to to not know this is bullshit.
1: Um, I don't don't think (laughs) so either. I mean...
0: The second part of this that was a problem was in addition to being a ponzi scheme, it was also a pyramid scheme which takes even more advantage of people. Now, the difference in the, do you know the difference in the two like from a nutshell perspective?
1: I mean, I sort of do, but you can explain. I mean, I don't have a ready-made explanation
0: what, for it. Well, so so a pyramid scheme is when you are then recruiting people and giving them incentives or payments or products or like whatever. It's like
1: multi-level marketing.
0: It, it is. But typically the problem comes in that you're recruiting investors to recruit investors and you're not providing them with anything. If it's, if it's multi-level marketing, like – I don't want to name any particular one, but if like you're selling makeup or yoga pants or something like that, at least there's a product involved. And that's what makes it multi-level marketing and not a pyramid scheme. The scheme is some of the people coming in are just bringing other people in. Like that's their investment is the people.
1: Right, And there's, um, you know, the pyramid is uh, destined to collapse eventually.
0: Yeah. 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 Eventually, it like the it, it's essentially going to fall in on itself because unless it's set up in a way that like like some kind of product appears or some kind of profitability appears from consulting or something else, eventually you're going to run out of money and you're going to run out of investors bringing in investors.
1: Right, and so uh, as opposed to the reason that um, multi level marketing is the whole thing is because um, people are literally they the more people they recruit, the more money they make, and uh, so you end up with this skew just like a pyramid, right? (laughs) There's a lot of people at the bottom that aren't getting much. And there's very few people at the top that are, you know, making money. And so, um, you really just want the exchange of like putting the investment in, uh, the investee doing their thing and bringing in so much more money and divvying it out as a return. Right. That's what a real, like, that's what you want happening in a like legitimate, Business transaction of investment.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Even if it's something, the, the thing is, like, a lot of investments lose money. But when that happens, there are legal structures in place for them to either recoup or to have a write-off or whatever. And when you're in a bullshit scheme, the last thing you want to do is open up to the people who have to examine it. Like in the U.S., it would be bankruptcy courts and the IRS are looking at it. Um, you don't want the
1: SEC possibly too, depending yeah. on how you structured it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the idea here was when they launched this thing called OneCoin in late 2014, um, it's not a decentralized cryptocurrency that just sort of is out in the world or in the ether or on the internet, ever how you want to look at it. But it's a centralized currency that's hosted specifically on this company that she has founded with Sebastian Greenwood, um, which is OneCoin Limited. And Everything about OneCoin Limited is it's offshore. Well, OneCoin Limited has dedicated servers to host this cryptocurrency. Now, according to their websites, the main business was they would be selling educational material for trading. So their business was going to be teaching people how to do this business. And that business is it's a it's a cryptocurrency that they control. So members are able to buy packages which range from 100 euros to 150,000 euros. Um, I've seen it as high as 225, 250,000 euros, but the 100 to 120,000, that's on their website. Each package contained what are known as tokens. Um, Those tokens had to be given a series of protocols for assignment where they would mine or discover one coins on one coins dedicated network so one coin is said to be mined by servers at sites in bulgaria and hong kong and each level of these packages uh, gives new information to the person purchasing it one of the first red flags that was thrown up was once you got to certain levels of packaging past like the first or second level, everything was plagiarized from multiple sources. So in a typical one coin recruiting meeting, recruiters would talk about investing in cryptocurrency and they didn't talk about the educational material that they had sold these people at all. So it was like, like something like in the movie you'll have Tom Cruise standing on stage with a little microphone explaining to you how to invest in crypto coin and you've essentially purchased these materials that he doesn't ever talk about again he just tells you to put your money in, put your money in, put your money into one coin because it's the new thing so the only way to exchange one coins for any other type of currency was through their one coin exchange which is an internal marketplace for members who had invested more than a level one package or a starter package or a beginner package so, one coins there could be exchanged for euros, which were put into a virtual wallet, and then they could request the money by wire transfer. So, the marketplace had been set up in a way like a lot of bank accounts or ATM cards are. There were daily selling limits based on which package you had purchased of what you could pull out in that day. They had made it that way to limit the amount of one coins. Um, And I keep saying, I say that like it's in air quotes because it is in air quotes that could be exchanged for money every day. So on March 1st of 2016, without any kind of notices required by most of the agreements for the packages, OneCoin issued an internal notice that the market for OneCoin would be closed for two weeks for maintenance. It explained that this was necessary due to the high number of miners and for better integration with blockchain. On March 15th, 2016, the market opened again, but no changes had been made. Most of the transactions um, expired just like they had before. And all of those limits, uh, daily and weekly limits, stayed. So without notice in January of 2017, uh, about a year later, a little less than a year later, the, ex- the OneCoin exchange, the internal marketplace where people could get their money back, shut down. Individuals that were affiliated with the scheme or the top of the pyramid, as you expressed correctly, uh, they continued to accept funds. So the problem here that you have going on is, if you were to summarize this, is this company is secretly scamming all these transactions. They're not registered to an actual blockchain. There's no mining going on on any servers. There is simply... Cryptocurrency being represented like a facade on the servers. The U.S., the prosecutors here in the Southern District of New York, they say that the scam overall accounted for $4 billion. In China, uh, law enforcement there have recovered about $300 million. They prosecuted 98 people there. She disappeared in 2017 around the same time that a secret U.S. warrant was filed for her arrest. And her brother, Constantine, he took her place in the pyramid. But now pretty much everybody has disappeared or been arrested. She's the only one that we know of for sure that they've publicized has escaped arrest. And that's why she's on this list. Greenwood, Sebastian Greenwood, who was her partner, he was arrested in 2018. Her brother, Constantine was arrested in March of 2019. He pleaded guilty to charges of money laundering and fraud. And from what I understand, he is the sentence on his charges is about 90 years. So she even hung her own brother out the dry. Um, if you look at just like kind of the criticism of it, it breaks down like this year to year between 2015 and, and today. 2015, Bulgaria, they have a version of the SEC called the Financial Supervision Commission or the FSC. They issued a warning of potential risk in new cryptocurrencies, and they cited OneCoin specifically as an example of something investors should do their homework on and potentially avoid because of fraud. After this warning, OneCoin stopped any activity they had in Bulgaria and they only used banks in foreign countries to handle wire transfers from their participants. That's the first giant legal thing that happened. When you stop using like when, when a when a country says we're worried about our investors putting their money our citizens investing and putting their money into this, and they stop doing business with that country, that's a giant red flag. So in 2016, the Daily Mirror, who I go back and forth on how they are as a source, they wrote that one coin, one coin was a get rich quick scheme and potentially a cult. But specifically, they called it worthless. The company in the scheme gets put on observation lists in 2016 in Bulgaria, Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Latvia. Authorities there issue warnings that there are risks being involved in businesses like OneCoin, and they start to prosecute people linked to OneCoin. That's the first time that Ruja and her brother Constantine are indicted for something. So in March of 2016, Norway calls it a pyramid scheme and says they can't figure it out. Their direct selling association issues warnings that people should avoid it and have nothing to do with it. And in December 2016, the Italians' antitrust authority, they actually issue an injunction against one of the founding companies, One Network Services Limited. And they, the representatives in Italy are pointed out as being engaged in an illegal pyramid sales system. They order them to stop Uh, it's basically a cease and desist order, stop promoting and stop selling one coin in Italy. That investigation goes for about three months. And at the end of the investigation in February of 2017, the Italian antitrust authority bans one coin from Italy until they say otherwise. So also in December, 2016 um, the Hungarian central bank issued a warning that OneCoin was a pyramid scheme, and in China, that same year, they start to arrest the members and investors of OneCoin, and they seize about forty million dollars worth of assets in China in 2016. But they're not—they're see- not arresting OneCoin's management; they're arresting the people that were putting money in. So we move into 2017, and Croatia, their national bank puts one coin on a red flag list and they warn their citizens in Croatia. um, This is from their national bank and essentially from their treasury that they're not insuring anything related to one coin. So whereas if you had money in traditional investments, the stock market in the banks, you would have some level of protection that the Croatian national bank could offer But they tell everybody, we can't do that with this thing that's going on here. So in April 2017, Indians, the Navi Mumbai, uh, I guess it's the local and federal police, uh, they actually come in and arrest 18 people that are organizing a one-coin recruitment event in India. Now, the police that come in are from multiple agencies, and they go in undercover to watch one of the presentations, actually, it might be more than one presentation. But th- they go into the event and they don't do anything at first, but they start to arrest lower level people to try and reveal like where this is all going. Um, that investigation recovers several million dollars in several different bank accounts, and they they kept trying to stop the money from moving. Um, it actually makes like a fascinating limited series, how they did all of this. Uh, but like every time they would seize $4 million, $12 million from, would disappear at the same time. And and like this happens multiple times that they're um, uh, to the point that they form uh, a pretty massive task force. And they have about 20, 30 people that are just following the money trail to try and figure out how deep this one coin debacle goes in India. Uh, in April of 2017, Germany's uh, SEC, they issue cease and desist orders to all the companies related to one coin and this other sister company called One Life. The Bank of Thailand issues a warning against OneCoin and they declare it as an illegal digital currency and say that it cannot be used for trade. And in Belize, which is one of the home bases for OneCoin, they issue a warning about One Life Network, which is the operating name in Belize, um, that they are conducting business without a license, uh, without permission. And they warn people that investing in this company will be subject to arrest. And then in June of 2017. The Vietnamese government begins to investigate how OneCoin is operating there at all um, because OneCoin has made claims that they're licensed to operate. And it turns out that what they're doing is they're having to jump sort of country to country. And they, they have all these different little operations going at one, co- one time. And whenever they get sort of kicked out of one country, they'll go to another country and they'll focus there to get as much money as possible. The Vietnamese realized this. And in June of 2017, they issue a statement that what OneCoin is doing is bouncing around and that anything stating they're allowed to operate in Vietnam is forged. So they're starting to get them on it. They're going at them a different way. And in July 2017, they the Indians that were task forcing, they finally figure out that Ruja is behind it. And they charge and indict her as part of that investigation. Moving into 2018, uh, the Bulgarian police raid OneCoin's offices on behalf of Germany and Europol. So there's this massive international incident where over the course of three days, they tear apart 14 companies tied to OneCoin. And they pull in 50 witnesses for an investigation that work in those Uh, companies, and they seize all of their servers that are located there. Uh, In May of 2018, just a couple of months later, OneCoin has moved on and they're operating in Samoa. And Samoa uh, decides that it's a high-risk pyramid scheme. They don't quite see the Ponzi side of it yet. And the Central Bank of Samoa issues a warning about OneCoin to shut it down in its operations there. And in 2019, what happens is Constantine has been put in the position of he's he's been in charge of everything. He gets charged for everything because he's in charge. He pleads guilty to fraud and money laundering in connection with those schemes. And then they start going after lawyers. And in Southern District of New York in November of 2019, they find a lawyer named Mark Scott guilty of moving $400 $400 million dollars out of the US. Uh, they found him guilty of money laundering and multiple counts of bank fraud related to moving OneCoin's money. And then finally, in 2019, the BBC gets involved and they publish their investigation of OneCoin, um, both in print and podcast form. And they talk about uh, the hunt or the search for. And they believe that that Ruja Ignatova is residing in Frankfurt, Germany, under a new name. 2020 uh, BNY Mellon, which is the Bank of New York, the the Mellon Corp., they flag um, multiple uh, transactions for the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. About $200 million worth of transactions are found, and they're all related to OneCoin. And then in 2021, there are multiple court actions against Ruja and this guy Gilbert Armenta, who is a part of the scheme um, in the U.S. Basically, they have civil rulings against them, and then they start to try them in absentia, which means they weren't there for the trial and then, again, in May 2022, Europol adds her to their most wanted list. And June 30th, the FBI makes her fugitive number 527 in the United States. I, I find all this fascinating because it's like a brand new type of Ponzi scheme for me. Um, I'm used to like old in, investment schemes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Um, now... What, uh, like, when you're, you know, reading all that and uh, you just uh, sort of covered it for us, but, like, what goes through your head when you're thinking about, about this type of case?
0: Uh, when I, so at first, like, it's always really hard for me to wrap my head around, like, what they were doing in the first place. Um, I look at it and I'm like, okay, what, uh, what thing were they they actually defrauding people and what goes through my head in this case is they were defrauding people at every level. So they weren't just like promising people money and not delivering. They were actively bringing people into like I, – I picture those house flipping seminars that were popular for a while. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And they would run ads on like the radio and you'd hear them on podcasts and they'd be on like television like, and the houses, internet. Yeah. 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 A
1: million dollars. yeah, I yeah.
0: You. If, if you pay $699, you can come in and learn how to make millions. Stuff like that fascinates me and baffles me. So it fascinates me from the perspective that people bothered to do it at all. And they were doing that here. They were bringing these people in saying you can make, You know, enough money to retire if you just come learn how to do what we're doing with this one coin thing or one life thing, depending on where you are at. The other part of it that baffles me is they were able to do this. So they developed this network of people early on who were mostly the early in investors. And they're able to have this set up so that every time they're taken down for like seven years, they're taken down in one place. They're able to immediately operate in another place to keep the money coming in to the point that, and and I don't know if prosecutors are overestimating this or not, but if this is a $4 billion scheme that unfolds in seven years, that is crazy.
1: I mean, it is, but it's also not. And so... It wasn't like there. It wasn't like there weren't a ton of red flags here, right? Um, oh
0: yeah, everywhere.
1: You know, uh, obviously, this is uh, a person who's on the FBI uh, top ten most wanted fugitive list right now, and she's responsible for this havoc that she, you know, wreaked on this whole situation. But other than that part of it. Like the economics of, you know, how uh, finance works <laughs> overall, like um, it doesn't jive in my brain as to like how it gets to that point. Does that make, am I, yeah. sense? like, because I'm going, this, like, why is this, can, why is she on this list? Um, <laughs> and I'm going, well, you know, how did, this happened to begin with. And of course, you know, that gets into, you know, to explain sort of how, why this shouldn't have happened is like, it doesn't have anything to do with crime. It has to do with understanding how money works and like, uh, explaining, you know, how in an economy, everybody can't win right uh a, a market's going to get saturated and um unless it's your idea or like you were saying you know really early investors like you're not going to be the one reaping the benefits you're just handing over your money basically um that is true like you should everybody should be able to look at a deal and see that right um yeah I know that that's not the case because we have things like this happen, right? Um, and it's obviously so complicated, except it's not really complicated. And anytime you see something that's so complicated that you have to rely on someone else's expertise to, to just trust them and not understand how you're going to get rich off of this. right? Um, yeah. It, you're more than likely being taken advantage of. And um, I don't feel I like, I mean, obviously she did it very well. She convinced a lot. I mean, if it's really in the billions of dollars, she convinced a lot of people, right? But again, you know, she wasn't doing uh, it, the cryptocurrency thing. She was riding a wave as far as I'm concerned. Um,
0: it's and- a massive wave. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And she exploited uh, the – because, okay, yes, there are people who have made money from cryptocurrency, right? It's people who, like, made the cryptocurrency. Those are the people that have made money. Um, Going forward, like, it's not going to be a thing where everybody can make a ton of money off of cryptocurrency. That's not how economics works. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, anytime you've got a situation that involves uh, anything besides just sort of like, you know, having a product and selling a product and turning a profit, like when you're into these um, investment groups or equity firms or cryptocurrency or, you know, anything like that, uh, the bottom will fall out eventually.
0: Yeah, it will.
1: The way that everything happens, like especially in the United States in our economy, everything just gets absorbed back in. And you do have these like outliers where um like this this particular person, and you said like on the way to her being on the fugitive list, there's been a lot of people that have been arrested, right? Yeah. It'd be interesting to know, like I imagine a lot of those people. Probably had no idea what they were doing was illegal. Um,
0: oh, I don't. I don't think so. I think the first two tiers of people here, like like the people who start this and the first people they recruit, I think they kind of have to know. My my gut says that everybody after that probably doesn't even know what's happening.
1: Well, I'm just curious, So – and and I don't have a good handle on this uh, because just from the tiny little bit I've talked to people about it, I think of it differently. But, um, you know, let's say like at one coin, like the office, if there's a person that works there, um, and I don't know exactly what that person would do, but, You know, they're just basically answering the phones and their presence in the building. Like, there is no way that they have any idea that the transactions aren't real. It would be like saying a teller at a bank, um, you know, knows what's happening way up the chain, right?
0: Yeah, you're right.
1: And so... I feel like a lot of people could have been doing a job that they were, you know, getting paid an hourly wage for and thinking to themselves, oh, this is a thing. Now the problem lies in this particular situation. Um, they weren't, it's so close to almost being like legitimate as far as cryptocurrency goes because like there was a lot of things you can do with um you know billions of dollars uh to make uh money right there there is even just you know charging interest on things uh to loan money out but that wasn't what was happening she took the money and I guess spent it. I'm not entirely sure what she did with it.
0: Oh, um, my, my my guess is she used it to disappear.
1: Well, right. And so, you know, it's, I wonder when uh, her plan, when was, when did, uh, you know, was her plan to have a legitimate situation? And then she's like, wow, I have all this money, right? Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're offering a $100,000 reward. And I'm sure, it, well, it, I would do this, but if I were her, I would say, yeah, well, I'll give you $250,000 to, to
0: yeah. keep your
1: mouth shut, right? <laughs> and so I do think, um, now this has been, Uh, a massive drain on resources like all over the world right yeah it
0: really has yeah
1: and um it i just i really do have issues with um the amount of money that gets spent on like financial crimes where while it's not i mean it Physically, it's a victimless crime. Nobody got beat up or killed or whatever. I mean, it, like it's not like a murder, right? Um, and those are what's really important. Now we do have financial laws in place, right? Yeah. Um, but I feel like if I don't, I don't know what the solution would be. But it seems like more people just need to realize, like that's not how. Uh, Reality works, right? And then they wouldn't get sucked into this kind of thing and they wouldn't lose their money. And so people like um, this lady, they wouldn't uh, have the opportunity to commit these crimes, right? Because nobody would be buying it.
0: Yeah, this is the one thing she's good at. That's why she doesn't go further and make money with the money she's stealing this is it this is her thing this is what she did her thesis on she knows how all the courts work she knew how to disappear into all of this she's apparently a talented lawyer and consultant to some degree but even that is probably a little bit on some level bullshit she's just like like this is her thing she knows how to be a scammer
1: and you know that's really unfortunate um At least she was, uh, which it was criminal, but at least she was, like, really successful um, as far as what she was trying to accomplish. Um, It was wrong. But, you know, as far as, like, uh, being a scammer, the stupid scams that, like, all of us encounter all the time, you know, I don't even see how anybody's ever successful at them, right? So, like, what a waste. Um, At least she did seem to do something with it. Um,
0: (laughs) I don't, I I don't know how you measure that, but I understand what you're saying.
1: Well, cause well, most of the time when you come across a scam and especially when somebody gets taken by it, uh, that, you know, you know, personally they're telling you about and you're like, wait, how did that happen? Um, because you you want to be like, you're a moron. Right. Um, and. I think to myself, well, like they hit one person, you know, a year or something. I don't know what the statistics are on that, but I'm going, yeah, that, that person needs to take the knowledge they have to come up with these stupid scams that can't possibly be profitable and they need to put it towards, you know, something profitable. That's what I'm thinking to myself. Um, but like in this situation, uh, this was profitable for her, like so oh, profitable.
0: Yeah, I don't like I you know, I don't know that she's the mastermind here as much as she's the person who designed the jurisdictional maze. So when I look at I I I, I will think tell you
1: it came I I, I think it's genetic because you know her father and brother are also involved in things, but go ahead, I cut you off. Sorry. No, I was just
0: gonna say, like, when I when I think of her being on the top 10 most wanted fugitives list and all of the, you know, whether it's her or the people around her or whatever, all of the resources that have gone into hunting all of this down, it makes me crazy.
1: It's a, it's a waste um, It compared to when you start thinking about, you know, the number of unsolved legitimate missing people cases, the number of unsolved homicides um the uh you know starving children of the world like all the problems that you know exist in reality yeah this, this is a completely made up one um and you know however you look at it it's it's made up from, you know, bureaucracy, red tape laws, uh, you know, uh, de- deception, she's deceiving people into giving her money, and then greed, ultimately, because uh, the reason they put money with her as opposed to traditional, you know, banks is because she promised them something, right? Right. Yeah, um, And, you know, you just, everybody just needs to realize um, the economy doesn't work that way. Everybody can't win in the housing, in the house flip scheme, like you were talking about, you can't make money from that, but everybody can't make money from that. Somebody has got to be buying these houses, Right. Right. Um, Like, I mean, the ultimate finished product when the house is flipped and the person is looking to turn a profit. When the first person had the idea, it was a novel idea and they made money doing it. But like, it's not a get rich type job. It's just like kind of one of those ordinary jobs, right? Where you're like, I got to do all this work to just sort of get by and make some money. Right. Um, And so... Everything's like that. Everybody can't um, win in these types of schemes. It just doesn't work that way. Somebody is always paying the piper. I mean, that's how it functions, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I so I don't have anything else on this. This if you've seen her, maybe approach her and see if she'll give you more money than they're willing to give you. If you want to turn her in, it's a hundred grand. Turn her into the FBI. I'm sorry, of being- I would
1: say, um, yeah, you need to turn her in if you know who she is. But it sounds, it seems to me like they know where she's at. Um, they just oh, somebody does. Have yeah. Jurisdiction to get her, um, and quite frankly, I, I, I just have trouble getting behind uh, more resources continuing to be dumped into this.
0: Yeah, that's 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 the main reason she comes up here. She hasn't been found, and I I, I realize I have to make it, people who haven't been found be a part of this fugitive <laughs> thing um, because I said that's what I was going to do. And um, but I have um, I have another person that I want to talk about briefly today because I didn't know this about her. I don't know how I missed this. I, I'm just going to tell like a story of someone who their fugitive situation is is wrapped up. But it starts with this incident on August 7th, 1970, called the Marin County Civic Center attacks. Had you ever heard of this?
1: Uh, I I actually don't remember if I had heard of it before or not.
0: Okay, so this is in San Rafael, California. The Marin County Civic Center was a target of two related domestic terror attacks in 1970 um, tied to escalating racial tensions uh, in the state's criminal justice system. And on August 7th, a 17-year-old guy named Jonathan Jackson attempted to coerce the release of the Soledad brothers when, they, when he kidnapped Superior Court Judge Harold Haley from the Civic Center. They, the kidnappers led by this guy, they, they take five hostages by car. One of the kidnappers fires at the police, and it causes a shootout that leaves four people dead, uh, including John Jackson, who was 17 at the time. Judge Haley, who had a shotgun taped to his neck, was also killed. So killing a Superior Court judge is a huge deal, even in 1970. Three others were wounded. Now, the the event got a lot of intense media coverage, uh, and there was a, a manhunt and a trial for one of the people alleged to have been involved and for the the black Panthers. Uh, they went after the, lo- the local black Panthers. Now there was a woman involved. That was a professor at UCLA who had some connections to Jonathan Jackson and the Soledad brothers, which included George Jackson who was Jonathan's older brother. That's how he's involved in all of this. This woman owned weapons that were used in the incident, but stated she had no knowledge of it's happening. Now, same year, but October the 8th, the Weathermen, which was like the Weather Underground, a far-left militant organization, they detonated explosives um, to show their support for this this earlier incident. But here's what's crazy about this. So that's that's the gist of of what happened um, at the Civic Center. I I mention that because the person they go chasing is Angela Davis. And Angela Davis, for those of you who don't know, she's an African-American political activist, a philosopher, a scholar, and a a pretty profound author. Um, But at one point in time, she was on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh, And... She even like has a, a poster out there. <laughs> you can go and read about her a lot of different places. Um, but the time period we're going to cover for her, uh, she would have been a 25 year old professor uh, in 1969 at the University of Los Angeles, uh, University of California in Los Angeles. She was an acting assistant professor in the philosophy department. Now, she had been recruited by Princeton and Swarthmore, but she opted for UCLA because she liked its urban location. At the time, she was known as this radical uh, feminist um, and activist. She was an active member of the Communist Party USA or CPUSA. Um, and she was active as uh, in, in an affiliate of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. So in 1969, the University of California system initiated a policy against hiring communists. Such a weird thing to me to say that now. Um, And at the uh, September 19th, 1969 Board of Regents meeting, and that's the governing body. The regents of the University of California is the governing body of the state university system there. They fired Davis from her $10,000 a year job because of her membership in Communist Party USA. They were urged to do this by the governor of California. Do you know who the governor of California was in 1969? No, I don't. Ronald Reagan.
1: That's what I was going to say, but I was like, no, that's too, that's too early. Yeah, it was
0: Ronald Reagan, 1969. Interesting. So Judge Jerry Pacht, he ruled that the Regents could not fire Davis solely because of her affiliation with the Communist Party, and she resumed her post. The following year, on June 20th, 1970, the Regents again fired Davis for using inflammatory language in four different speeches. Uh, The report stated that we deem particularly offensive such utterances as her statement that the regents killed, brutalized, and murdered the People's Park demonstrators, and her repeated characterizations of the police as pigs. Uh, Later on, the American Association of University uh, Professors, which has membership on um, I think there's 42 state organizations and like more than 500 affiliate organizations for on campuses. They censured the board of Regents for their actions against Angela Davis. So here's how Angela Davis comes to be on the FBI's most wanted list. She was a supporter of the Soledad brothers. And these guys were three inmates who were accused and charged with the killing of a prison guard at Soledad prison. Um, John Vincent Mills was the guard who was killed on January 16th, 1970. George Jackson, who is Jonathan's older brother, Fleeta Drumgo and John Clichette, they were alleged to have murdered Mills in retaliation for the shooting deaths of three black prisoners during a fight in the exercise yard on January the 13th by another guard named Opie Miller. Jackson was later killed in a prison riot, and he's never tried. Um, But Clichette and Drumgo were acquitted by a jury. This was like a very serious time in civil rights history. The way that this goes down is basically the the Marin County civic attacks, which I was describing. John Jackson gives multiple African-American defendants guns, and they take Judge Harold Haley, they take a prosecutor, And they take three female jurors from a trial out of the the Marin County Civic Center. And as he's transporting these hostages um, and two black defendants from the trial away from the courtroom, James McLean, who is one of the defendants in the trial that was going on that that Jackson was interrupting, he shoots at the police and the police return fire. The judge, John Jackson, James McLean, and another man are killed in the melee. Uh, One of the jurors and the prosecutor are injured. And although the judge was shot in the head with a blast from a shotgun, he also suffered a a chest wound from a bullet that is possibly from outside of the van, meaning from the police. Uh, Evidence showed during the trial later, showed that any of these could have been fatal. Now, Angela Davis had purchased several of the firearms that Jackson used in the attack, including the shotgun that was used to shoot. Judge Haley. She bought this gun at a San Francisco pawn shop two days before this incident. Um, And she was also found to have been corresponding with one of the inmates who were involved in the planning. So, California considers all persons concerned in the commission of a crime, whether directly committing the act, constituting the offense, or aiding and abetting the commission of the act, they're all principles in any crime so committed. At the time. So Davis ends up charged with aggravated kidnapping. And first degree murder. in the death of Judge Harold Haley. And. Marin County Superior Court Judge Peter Allen Smith. Issues a warrant for her arrest. Hours after the judge issues. The warrant. Uh, for her arrest. On August 14th 1970. A massive manhunt. Kicks off. And. On August the 18th, four days after the warrant was issued, the FBI director at the time, Liz Davis, on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted fugitive list. She was the third woman on the list, and she was the 309th person to be on the top 10 Most Wanted Fugitives. Guess who the FBI director was at the time?
1: J. Edgar Hoover. Yep, it's Hoover.
0: So Davis flees California, and now she's a fugitive. Um, And you can read her autobiography, which is, she's got a, she's written several books. Um, You can actually read Angela Davis autobiography. And it tells uh, the story of of this specific time. She flees California. She's hiding in her friend's homes. And at night they would move her around on October 13th, 1970. FBI agents found her at um, a Howard Johnson Motor Lodge in New York City. And President Richard Nixon congratulated the FBI on its capture of the dangerous terrorist known as Angela Davis. On January 5th, 1971, Davis appears at the Marion County Superior Court. She declared her innocence. She said, I now." declare publicly before the court, before the people of this country, that I'm innocent of all charges, which has been leveled against me by the state of California. And John Opp, who was the general counsel of the Communist Party uh, USA at the time, he was one of the first attorneys to represent Davis for her alleged involvement in the shootings. While being held in the Women's Detention Center, Davis was initially segregated from other prisoners in uh, solitary confinement. And this is all in New York, by the way. So she obtained a federal court order to get out of segregation in solitary. Um, across the nation, thousands of people began organizing a movement to try and get her released. In New York City, black writers there formed a committee called Black People in Defense of Angela Davis. And by February 1971, more than 200 local committees in the United States, 67 committees in foreign countries, were working to free Angela Davis from jail. Um, even John Lennon uh, got involved with Yoko Ono um, when they were releasing sometime in New York City. The song Angela is about Angela Davis. In 1972, after a 16-month incarceration, the state allowed her to be released on bail from county jail. And on February twenty-third, 1972, Roger McAfee, who was a dairy farmer from Fresno, California, paid her $100,000 bail with the help of Steve Sparacino, who's a wealthy business owner, and the United Presbyterian Church contributed to her legal defense expenses. A defense motion for a change of venue was granted, and the trial was moved to Santa Clara County, California, on June 4, 1972, after 13 hours of deliberations. An all-white jury returned a verdict of not guilty, The fact that she owned the guns that were used in the crime was judged insufficient to establish her role in the plot. She was represented by Leo Branton Jr. He hired psychologists to help the defense determine who in the jury pool might favor their arguments, which has become much more common now to do jury consulting this way. He also hired experts who would discredit the reliability of eyewitness accounts. I, I just find her story fascinating.
2: Well,
1: it is fascinating and um so uh I just sort of wanna uh swing back around because um it's sort of, it to me it's sort of important to the story, but um initially she, uh uh Jonathan Jackson, um so he his motivation was that his brother George Jackson, who was serving time for robbing a gas station, right? Uh, that's how this whole situation, uh, where the kidnapping and everything starts. So the 17 year old brother, so this kid's 17 years old. Isn't that crazy? Yep. Um, they make this plan. And, um, so George Jackson had been, uh, serving time for robbing a gas station. And, um, he was killed, right? But,
0: but that's a year after Jonathan was killed. Wait a the, the San Quentin Six is what you're thinking of. Um, that actually takes place on August 21st, 1971. So, what we were just talking about is
1: 1970.
0: Oh, okay. so, so, all right, so George Jackson. What happened there was – so he meets a member of the Black Panther Party in Soledad State Prison in 1969. They get transferred together um, along with some other guys to what's called the O-ring, which is the worst part of um, what a maximum security row. And according to Jackson, the strongest um, – Holdout in the O wing could last no more than a couple of weeks because the O wing destroyed logical processes of the mind. Everything was completely disorganized. Your thoughts become disorganized. The noise was madness. Um, there was constant mental clink- clinking. There was no showers. Um, it smelled like human waste all the time. He wrote some very poetic stuff about Maximum Security Row. And he would write these letters from prison de- describing the attitude of the staff towards the convicts as defensive and hostile. Now, on January 13th, 1970, there were 14 black inmates and two white inmates from Max Row in Soledad Prison who were released into a wreck yard. It had been months since they'd been out in this yard. I think it had been six months. So the black prisoners were ordered to one side of the yard and the white prisoners remained in the middle. Um, there was a man there named Opie Milley. And I think Opie Milley was he might've just been an officer at the time, but if I understand it correctly, he had some military experience. So he's up on a guard tower, 13 feet above these guys looking down and a fist fight starts. Opie Miller uh, fires on the prisoners. He doesn't fire a warning shot. He just fires on the prisoners. And three of those black inmates out of the 14 were killed. So WL Nolan, who had been transferred there with Jackson and Cleveland Edwards. They die right there in the yard. Alvin Miller, he gets taken to the prison hospital and he dies a couple hours later. And one of the white inmates is a guy named Billy Harris. He gets uh, hit by the fourth shot that uh, Opie Miller was firing. He ends up like getting shot in the groin and he even loses a testicle. So, on June tenth, nineteen seventy, George Jackson describes a scene as having seen this pig. That's his words, uh, murdering his three brothers with a military rifle. So, following this incident, thirteen black prisoners begin a, a hunger strike because they they're, they're refusing to eat until an investigation happens. And on so this is the the it like happening very quickly, January sixteenth. Monterey County, which is where Soledad is, they have a grand jury that comes out, and they basically say Miller's not guilty of anything. They rule the shooting of Nolan, Edwards, and Miller as a justifiable homicide. They don't let any black inmates testify, um, including who the 11 guys that were on the yard that day. Um, and the inmates here, the grand jury's ruling on a prison radio. So right after that happens, about half an hour, an hour later, the prison staff finds John Mills dying on another section of Max Rowe. So what they did was uh, the prisoners grabbed the closest guard when they heard this come over the radio. They beat him, and they threw him off the third floor onto the common area down below. This is George Jackson's cell block. So on February 14th, 1970, they're investigating Mill's death, which they didn't investigate the death of the inmates, but they're investigating the death of the guard. George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and John Clichet, they all get indicted for first degree murder. That's what's happening here. John Jackson is protesting uh the the charges of first degree murder for his brother.
1: Okay, well, um that sort of makes more sense. I just I was confused by the dates, but um I do see why he uh, took five hostages and they ended up dead now. I mean he was just really irritated at everything. Um, especially since his, you know, brother had been killed. I can sort his of
0: his brother hadn't been killed yet. His brother gets killed later.
1: No, I'm sorry. Oh, oh,
0: you're talking about. You can see why George Jackson lost his shit. Correct.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, that makes more sense. I was so confused, but okay. No, I'm. That's my bad. Um, and so the way that I sort of saw this was like there was tons of you know uh, civil rights uh, action happening as far as um you know moving towards like not having so much discrimination. You know, they talked about how Jonathan Jackson, um, he. Uh, was Angela Davis's uh, quote, bodyguard, end quote. Um, And so it made a little bit of sense that uh, he could have been in possession of guns that she had, you know, purchased.
0: This is why I brought this episode up in the middle of all these fugitives. First up, Angela Davis is amazing. The... Just the fearlessness she holds is amazing. I don't care what anybody says about her. I mean, at this point in time, she is still uh, a huge activist. Um, I believe she's 77 years old this year, maybe? 77, 78, something like that. Right. Um, you know, she has continued to be her, her entire life, in spite of all this happening. Um, she's had multiple honorary degrees And uh, similar to what you just described and and like how hard it was to sort of wrap your head around what was happening here. I am very thankful that we don't live in the same world that these events happened. That like we now have to worry about the cryptocurrency scams, but.
1: Well, and I think uh, like this type of thing, um, Just sort of the, like, actually, it's, and to me, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure it was a racial divide, but, like, all the things that are happening here are so brutal, like, from the prisoners just punching each other out to the guard reacting by just shooting them. Like, regardless of, you know, what color skin these people have, like, it's barbaric the way that they're acting, right? Um, Yeah. Throughout all the events that sort of led up to why we're talking about Angela Davis anyway. And so you know, r- racism's still a thing and it's still like a heavy divide. Um, we live in a relatively, uh, actually not relatively, we live in a drastically different world today, right? We
2: um, do.
0: We absolutely now, do.
1: There are still issues, right? Um, a lot of issues, uh, but we've come quite a ways. And, you know, it is because of activists that spoke up and uh, just, you know, they had to be radical because if they weren't radical, they didn't have a voice at all, right?
0: Um, Absolutely.
1: Obviously, uh, I get this whole situation. Sadly, um, it was, you know, all for naught, really, because um, a lot of... Quite a few people lost their lives, right? Um, I don't over, think it was
0: all for not, though. You mean this particular uh, protest here with the the way it went down?
1: Well, with uh, what I mean was for not was uh, Jonathan Jackson's sort of uh, misguided attempt at.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. He was trying uh, to. He was trying to do whatever he could.
1: Well, and he was 17 years old, okay? Um, he, he, he took action, right? Like a 17-year-old would take action. And while I commend the spirit behind that, like killing more people was not the solution. I don't know that that happened on purpose. And then this young man lost his life right and while you know it's a little bit of you know he he was behind the cause and he was the smarter like there's so much more to that entire situation and so all of his actions ultimately you know the net so like i was confused earlier but now i get it the following year his brother died right Yeah. yeah um and so it it none of these things really accomplished uh, anything. I'm not talking about the overall like civil rights movement that was happening back then, but I'm talking about these little violent interludes that seem like, you know, the prisoners fighting um, the, them throwing the guard over the side after he, had, the another guard had shot the prisoners. Right.
2: Yeah. All of
1: these things. Um, it's like this really drastic measure for, what I consider not accomplishing anything uh, because it was just more people dying for essentially no reason.
0: Well, I I hope that the collective of their actions outweigh like the, the smaller stuff like this. I go
1: ahead. I would be interested to know, um, and you probably don't know right off the top of your head, but so she was on the FBI's most wanted list Yep. and, um, she was found, she proclaimed her innocence from start to finish. Now she did flee, but, uh, different world, different place. I actually, I would say, uh, it's not necessarily the worst thing to flee from the cops. Uh, but you know. when you're facing circumstances where you've got like guards killing prisoners and that kind of thing. Right. Cause you're just, it can be a little bit intimidating or a lot intimidating, but Sarah, she was on the FBI's most wanted list. She's brought in. She proclaims her innocence from start to finish. And, uh, she is found to not be responsible for the crimes alleged against her by an entirely white jury. Right.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, which I don't know how that happened, but whatever. Um, see, it, it is interesting, though, because it was an all-white jury, but it was also a jury that was derived from some sort of uh, cutting-edge uh, psychological analysis of the jury pool, Right.
0: Yeah, it was a what Leo Branton did there was a huge deal. Like it was,
1: and it's it was carried over now, like almost instinctually, right? I mean, it's, yeah, high
0: profile trials now are all very, very heavily, um, uh, consulted the,
1: on. The jurors are uh picked like, uh, more so than just the like three questions they typically ask you, right? I mean, it's, right. there's a lot more that goes into it. And so the, it is interesting. Um, I really don't, I don't know if like she was aware that there was some sort of plot going down. I don't necessarily think it matters. I certainly don't think that she had, uh, she didn't say like, go kill those people or whatever. I know she didn't do that, right? Um, just based on sort of like her you know, like you were talking about her uh, her autobiographical story, right? Her, what has come out about her, all the good things she's done. And so, you know, I don't know. The jury sat through the trial and they found her not guilty. And um, I would like to know uh, any stats, and I'll look it up and maybe find it. But, uh, like, how many people on the FBI's most wanted list who, you know, come off the list because they're captured, or that go on to be found not guilty.
0: I I don't know that. That's one of the things that stood out about her to me. Not I mean not only that, but just like her whole everything about her life is different. Um,
1: right, and so I so while she was found not guilty, I actually I feel like uh, the circumstances under which she was put on the list, they did involve violent crimes against several people, right? An association yep. with them. And so I do feel like those types of uh, people that are wanted, because uh, logically this wasn't far-fetched, right? She had purchased guns. They were in the possession of people who who took hostages and killed people in a court uh, house, right? I mean it's a logical progression there. And this is actually exactly sort of how the system's supposed to work is when you present your actual case, the jury finds you not guilty if you are in fact not guilty. Um, So it did actually kind of progress in a, in a good way. Right. Um, But I, you know, just because she was found not guilty, I don't think that it was a waste of resources based on what they were trying to accomplish, which was to get justice for victims of violent crime. They had died, Um, you know, which is far different than, uh, you know, financial crimes that are on there. Now, I did check really quick on the current, uh, which you read earlier, the current top 10 fugitives. Um, And, She is the only one. Ruha, is that her name? Ruja. Ruja. Ruja?
0: I I don't know how you say it, but she's the only female and Uh, the only financial crime.
1: Well, she's the only female. Yes, uh, that's true. And um, she's also uh, the only financial crime. Every single one of the other ones is... Uh, most of them are murders or kidnapping and murders, and I believe there's some like trafficking, human trafficking, but most of the rest of the um, fugitives are, you know, kind of more acceptable to me <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to, to like dumping resources. And anytime there's a crime committed, um, that's a violent crime against somebody.
0: I can't remember. Did we release the Michael James Pratt thing? Did we We talked about him somewhere in here, right? Or is he one of the fugitives? He's the one from the girls do porn thing.
1: Yeah, we talked about him. Uh, whether it's been released or not is yet to be seen.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I don't. I don't have a lot more about her story. I will say this about that time: the line was much finer between good and evil back then. It was much harder to differentiate who was right and who was wrong. And there was a lot of crazy stuff that went down to get people into jail and then got worse once they got into jail.
1: Right. And so that doesn't even delve further into like, well, you know, how many innocent people were convicted and wrongfully in jail or whatever. Right. Um, And, you know, you could go pretty deep into the deeper story that uh, is why she ended up on the FBI's, uh, most wanted list. But, you know, if you think about it, uh, you said the line was much finer, right? And and I agree. And this is sort of an illustration in my mind. Um, when you when it comes to prisoners that are like, I guess, segregating themselves in the prison yard in 1970 or whatever was happening there like the blacks went one way the whites went the other way that's how the story sort of read and then they start fighting right um and so these are people who are convicted and they're in prison and they start fighting and then instead of not firing a warning shot uh, a guard starts killing them right fast and so that is like well you know is it completely wrong? Well, he shouldn't have just started killing them, but they are prisoners in jail fighting, right? Okay. And so then, you know, you fast forward and, uh, that was a fine line between good and, you know, bad. Now you've got, uh, unfortunately, uh, bad things still happen. Like, for example, officers killing, um, people that aren't in custody, that perhaps should be going into custody, but they end up dying before they even get into custody. Right. Yeah. That's a clear line. Right. That's a big, bold line where, you know, in the seventies, it was a fine line, like, well, what's going on here? Um, but you know, now it's, and it's a, it's a slow evolution. Cause I have to say that when the line is finally bold enough, that stuff will stop happening.
0: Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabbratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabbratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail dot com, and you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com truecrimexs dot com. We'll see you next time.
2: season and Santa is checking his list to see who is naughty or nice and I'm kind of feeling guilty so I wrote a song so many presents (laughs) so little time Santa won't be coming by my house this year cause I tried to drown my sister And I pierced my (laughs) ear Oh, Mama made it perfectly clear Santa don't like bad boys Especially Jewish ones Gnip Gnop and Lego blocks Are what I desire So why'd I have to set the pizza guy's hair on fire? I told him I was sorry. I'm a liar, so no toys for me. I don't deserve them. I couldn't wait for a big wheel as the holiday neared. But then I told my grandma that she had a beard. (laughs) Dear Santa, I know what my problem is, why I can't be good. It's a fear of intimacy. You see, my whole life, whenever I've met someone really great like you, and I keep feeling I'm getting too close to them, something inside me makes me want to screw it up. So in a weird way, the reason I'm so bad is because I love you so much, Santa. Rock'em, sock'em, robots is what I was hoping for. But then I made a death threat to Vice President Gore. <laughs> oh, Santa won't be knocking on my door, cause she's a big, fat whore. What made me say that Shoots and ladders would be so good indeed? So why'd I have to sell that copper bag of weed? So Santa, please give me my easy take up. I swear I thought billy goats were made for loving. <laughs> so, Santa, won't you accept my apologies? Santa, can't you see? I'm begging you, please. Oh, Santa, next year I'll do you right. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. <laughs>